0: It is time for another Kenning on Identity podcast. I'm your host, Waylon Kenning, and on today's topic, we're going to be talking about some of the new characteristics of a verifiable credential that don't exist in the physical world. I'm Whelan Kenning, strategic advisor, consultant, blah blah guy, when it comes to verifiable credentials, decentralized identity, this whole new world of identity. And what I'd like to talk to you about today is basically, how do we create digital credentials that aren't exactly the same as physical ones? We're all familiar with physical credentials, like we have a driver's license, we have a passport, we have a birth certificate. And that's fine. And also, not all identities are so serious as those ones. You might have an airline loyalty card, you might have a loyalty card from your coffee store, or your garden centre. and they have these characteristics that are associated to them that we're all familiar with. So if we think of a coffee card from a coffee store, how does the coffee company know that it's real? Well, they printed it, they put their design on it, okay? So you know that the card itself is not a fake card, which, you know, if you're just getting loyalty stamps from usage, even if it is a fake card, doesn't really mean anything, because that's not the bit that really conveys all the mean now. In fact, it's the stamp. So, you know, those ones where you sort of, I don't know, drink eight coffees or drink nine coffees and get one free. Every time that stamp is put on that card, and I say, I don't know, a coffee costs five dollars in every stamp is put on there, say you you need um, 10 stamps, and you get your next coffee free, every stamp is worth 50 cents. There's 50 cents worth of fraud in that stamp if you could fake it. And so, you might have a very fancy stamp, you might have a stamp that changes date. Some people have little, uh, little clippers, and they will put a special little clip on the piece of paper, like a little star sign, or stuff like that and all of that is really intended to sort of convey that this is authentic, this has not been tampered with, that this is a real coffee card, I'm really entitled to this benefit and I'm not trying to you know rip you off. Now if you have a look at the birth certificate or uh, a marriage certificate they also have some characteristics or even um, you know a letter that says, uh, an immigration letter that says, I don't know, welcome to New Zealand, welcome to Canada. They also have these characteristics. They might use special paper, they have, like, special embossing on them, they might have a little holographic strip built into them, so they have these things inside them that make it very difficult to create a copy, and then what's typed or printed on them is also uh, difficult to copy as well because they might have a signature and a signature you know as a physical signature they're not very easy to copy they might have a number that references you in a computer system that someone can type in and you know your name and your details pop up so someone types a fake number in or someone pretends to use your number it's not gonna make sense so the information in it has some stuff in it that makes sure that the information has high authenticity as well. Well that's fine but there are some downsides to physical uh to, to, to physical credentials today and I think when we think oh there's this new world of virtual credentials out there I'm just going to build physical ones as digital ones you're really missing a trick and so one of the tricks you're missing, is how long do credentials last? Now, I have a driver's license in New Zealand, they're good for about 10 years. So this one identity document, where I showed my face 10 years ago, is valid for this whole time. 10 years a lot of time for something to happen. I could, I don't know, get skinny, get fat, grow facial hair, lose all my hair kind of slowly happening anyway um but my appearance can change quite dramatically i don't know i get super skinny and i start wearing contacts like all the time colored contacts that's just how people recognize me and my pants can look very different from how it used to be slowly the binding between my identity the driver's license and who i am in the world it, it it gets eroded over time, because how I look, my appearance, becomes different to my appearance in the photo. I mean, this happens naturally when you get a photo taken of you at 15 to 25, like, you're still growing, you're still changing, you don't look like a 15 year old anymore. And, you know, that's the reason why, like, the driver's license expires in the first place, is that, you know, you look different to the photo. But Let's pretend that maybe the driver's license has an expiry of one day. And every day in the morning, you take a photo of yourself and that becomes the photo that's in your driver's license for that day. The ability to sorta, you know, for that photo to not represent you, the risk of that is pretty low because every day is going to be like a new photo of you and that photo is the one that you're going to take and it's very hard to change your parents really radically in just one day. So you can have this higher confidence that the photo that's on that credential really represents the person that it's portraying to be about, right? You might say, well, that's, that's silly. Why would you want to do something like that? Well, if you happen to have an old copy, or you've gotten someone's copy of their driver's license, maybe you magically put your own face on it. If it's valid for 10 years, then you have up to 10 years worth of time to do fraud with it, to maliciously consume it because essentially you're stealing someone's identity, right? You can use it for the period of time that it has not expired for. But if an identity only lasts for a day, then you only have one day worth of fraud. So what's another example where actually if we limit how long a number can last for, then you limit the amount of fraud that could be used higher. A credit card number is a great example of this. Let's say you have a credit card number, and that card number changes every day. So every store you go to, when you present your credit card number for that day, the next day, number's invalid, can't be you, doesn't exist anymore. So if someone steals your credit card number, you you know, you go to a fancy restaurant, they take the credit card, they swipe it, but they take a photo, with your digits, and save it out the back, the number is no longer valid the following day. I mean, you know, if you kind of take this to its logical extreme, imagine if your credit card number was different every single transaction. And that's roughly how things like Apple Pay and Google Pay work, where they kind of create this token which represents, and you know, I'm sort of glossing over a bit of the detail here, but practically, a temporary credit card number for every single transaction so that even if you were to take that token that temporary credit card number you can't use it again you can't replay it, it doesn't it's not valid like that it's only exists for that point in time so that's pretty powerful you know imagine if someone stole your birth certificates in the following day all the information on it you know, the number that says that this is a valid birth certificate instantly becomes invalid. They couldn't steal your identity, they couldn't pretend to be you. You really limit your risk. So we talked about one characteristic, which is longevity. And the fact is, digital credentials don't have to last very long. They could last days, hours, minutes, and you might say, well, What a nightmare, like, I don't want to have to apply and get a new, you know, driver's license every day, like, that's ridiculous. Well, if they're digital and they're in a digital wallet, you don't have to do anything. Essentially, the driver's license app would talk to the issuer and say, hey, my, the digital license I've got in my wallet here is about to expire, can you give me a new number? And, you know, the system says, oh, let me do a credential refresh, I will refresh you with updated information, which is your new driver's license. So you practically, as a person, human in the world, you don't really care and you don't really notice, there's no bother to you, in the same way that if your, um, your credit card number changed every time you presented it at a shop. Do you really care? I mean, you just use Apple Pay, it goes bing, and that's it. What the number was, you, did, you never saw in the first place. So you can design it in such a way where it, it, there's a lot of usability, there's no impact, but you increase the secured security posture. Another thing, another characteristic of new credentials Is this concept called selective disclosure. Selective disclosure really means that I can choose to request just some bits of an identity rather than all of it. Now pretend you are going to buy some alcohol from the supermarket. When you do that, you have to present your, uh, you have to present, you know, I don't know, some sort of proof of identity. That proof of identity could be your driver's license. But there's a lot of information on a driver's license. that has nothing to do with the supermarket. So it's got your name, they don't need to know your name. It's got your date of birth, they do need to know your date of birth to figure out if you're over 18 and I've got a way to even show less information about that in a second. They need to know... Do they need to know that you're a donor? Nope, they don't need to know that. Do they need to know that you can drive a motorcycle? They definitely don't need to know that. Um, and they might need to know, has it expired or not expired? And honestly, I don't even think they need to know that. So you give them so much information. Another example of you giving a lot of information is when you get a job. Often, when you apply for a job they might say, please attach a copy of your passport or proof of eligibility for working. Because you need to make sure that this person is able and has permission to work in the country you live in. So New Zealand would be some sort of information either from your New Zealand driver, uh, your your. Um, Your passport, I guess, or birth certificate, or some form from immigration. But there's a lot of information on there, including like the city you were born in, and your passport number, and the issuing authority. That's just maybe not any of their business, Like, really what they want to know is perhaps your name, perhaps your date of birth, and your eligibility to work, and everything else they don't need to know. So how do you disclose just a little bit of information? You know, if I was to go into the supermarket, and I put masking tape over every part of my identity, except my face, so you could prove that this identity was bound to me, and my date of birth, I feel like the supermarket would laugh at you and say, what the hell is this? But in the new world of verifiable credentials and decentralized identities, that is exactly what you can do. So what happens is the verifier, the relying party, the entity that wants this information can say, this set of information is the minimum that I need to successfully complete the transaction. So if you're the supermarket, what I need is the date of birth. I don't need anything else. In fact, don't give it to me. So some credentials that are issued are digitally signed sort of like at the whole envelope level so what i mean by that is pretend that the verifiable credential is a bit like your driver's license but it's put in an envelope and the envelope is signed by you know like a special wax stamp and so if you're going to go into the into the supermarket you say to the supermarket, hey, I've got my driver's license here and it's signed with a special wax stamp that's come from Wākakotahi when they look at it, they have to open the envelope and they see everything inside it it's kind of like how the current world today works, right? in the new world, with selective disclosure It's kind of a bit more like a scratchy lottery ticket where you can just say the whole envelope is signed but the only thing you want to see is my date of birth so I'm just going to scratch off the date of birth part so you know I'm going to reveal that part but everything else is still hidden. You know what I mean by scratchies, in New Zealand they're called instant kiwis, but basically all the information about, you know, is this ticket a winning ticket, and you know, do you have the five lemons, and your prize is $200, all of that stuff is covered, it's hidden. And you can scratch off parts. Imagine if your driver's license was like that, where all the information is normally hidden, but the entity that wants it, the verifier, the relying party says, I would like to see date of birth. And so you just scratch off the covering that's over date of birth. And then you hand it over and they're like, okay, perfect. I know your date of birth. So that concept is called selective disclosure because you are selectively disclosing just certain attributes of identity, not all of it. Now you can kind of take this to the next extreme with this other idea called predicate proofs. Sometimes called zero-knowledge proofs. But essentially, using some sort of fancy maths, and sometimes the um, implementation of these is, uh, they're still working out some of the buts. But practically a zero-knowledge proof creates a new fact, a new bit of information that is derived from information that is inside that credential. And a good example of this is, am I over 18? So I want to buy some alcohol in New Zealand, drinking age 18. It talks a lot about a driver's license and it having my date of birth on it. But New World, the supermarket or grocery store here in New Zealand, one of them, with more than one brand, they don't really, really, really want to know your date of birth. They're not, you know, they're not saying, oh, we're only going to serve beer to people born in January. What they really want to know is, are you 18 or over? That's it. So, If you have someone's date of birth, and you know the, you know the date today, you could derive or calculate if they're over 18 or not. And, if you could do that, sorry I'm annoyed there, you might be able to do that in such a way that then you just convey that fact that that derived bit of information then you're sharing the minimum that's required for that transaction to be successful but you're not sharing anything that you don't have to same as a bit like proof of work eligibility imagine if within your driver's license or your passport all you really need to share is the fact that you have a New Zealand passport. So having a New Zealand passport ensures, well is, representative of your New Zealand citizenship. And New Zealand citizenship conveys the right to work for New Zealand. So therefore, the only thing I really need to share in my passport is the fact that I have a New Zealand passport no other information that concept is really where the zero knowledge comes in the zero knowledge being i share with you nothing from that original identity what i do is i generate facts in a way that you can have assurance that i haven't made them up and i can give you those facts I mean that's pretty hard to do, mathematically, because if you think of all the facts on a driver's license written down, and then put in an envelope that's then signed with a wax seal from the transport agency this fact that I'm over 18 was not on the driver's license and The fact that I want to generate it, well, it would be me generating it, not the transport agency. So, there needs to be some cryptographic or mathematical way to derive, to calculate, this fact in a really trusted way so that whoever is receiving it, the verifier can have trust that I have zero knowledge of the original credential But I am 100% confident that the calculations you use to derive this new fact are tamper-proof, and you haven't just made it up. And so I'm not saying that that doesn't exist. There are, today, technologies that enable these predicate-proofs. But as I kind of pointed out, some of them have some uh, funky issues so your mileage might vary with zero-knowledge proofs and predicate proofs another thing that we can do with verifiable credentials that has not really been very easy to do In the past is we can request multiple sets of credentials at the same time from different entities and that sort of packet of information becomes what we need to successfully complete a transaction. What I mean by that is say you're applying for a mortgage you need three months worth of bank statements you need proof of address, you need proof of lawyer and proof of bank account proof of this and proof of that but let's say you just gave them two months worth of bank statements well, they're probably going to email you and say, oh hold on we need another month's worth and you might say, to hell with this I don't want a mortgage in." and now you've given them a lot of information but not enough to finish the transaction. So you've shared a lot of your information, you don't know what they're gonna do with it. Ironically, uh, one of the banks I talked with when I was going for a mortgage, they were like, hey, we want three three months worth of bank statements. And I thought it was very funny because they were my bank. So they gave me three months worth of bank statements and I gave them the information they gave me which I thought was a kind of a roundabout way of doing stuff. Anyways, my point is, in the physical world today, we, through accident or slack of awareness, we can give enough information for something to be unsuccessful, share a bunch of our private information, and still not have the transaction complete, and we're sort of in a riskier position than we were before. With verifiable credentials, the requester can say, I want to see a proof of identity document, I want to see a proof of address document, and I want to see a bank account for the months of January 2021, and February 2021, and March to, you know 2021. And if you don't give me that set of information at the time I request it in its totality, you cannot submit this request. And that's really neat because basically you as the requester, you as the relying party, you as the verifier, ensure that you always receive enough information for a transaction to be successful. And if you don't receive that amount of information, then you can decline essentially the request. I don't think that's really neat because you are protecting the privacy of people. So, those are some of the new characteristics of these digital verifiable credentials that really are not the same as physical credentials today. And there's a few others as well, so another concept is the concept of delegation, so how you might be able to um, take actions on behalf of someone else. You might have a child, and you're gonna have the child's verifiable credential, their identity, And it's going to be delegated to you as their parent so you can you know apply for a bank account on their behalf or apply for a you know get an airline ticket you might have power of attorney over someone getting old uh, you know or they have some sort of medical issue and you're taking action on their behalf all of these things which are very difficult in the physical world like what i do i just carry around a baby's passport and me carrying around a baby's passport is not the same as me having the commission, me being formally delegated authority to use it. We can do very easily with verifiable credentials. And on that note, can you believe another half an hour is just about up. Thank you so much for listening, I hope you found this topic to be quite interesting. I'm Whelan Canning, your strategic advisor, consultant, Guy, you can talk to about verifiable credentials, self-sovereign identity, making podcasts while you walk by the road, which seems like a bad idea every time I do it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's session and uh, let's talk again soon. Bye-bye.